Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. And I'm Josh Galecki. And today, we're talking about Eichenfell. Developed by Happy Ray Games and published by Humble Games, it was released for PC, Mac, Switch, PS4, and Xbox One in October of 2020. And just a heads up, we're going to be talking spoilers. So go play this game before listening if you're sensitive to that. And I would say this is one of those casts. If you're interested in this game and you wanted to hear our thoughts before you decided to play this, just go play it. Uh, The storyline, spoilers could do some damage to it, I think. Uh, And we'll be talking about all aspects of the game here, including the finer points of the story, too. So do yourself a favor and give it a shot before you listen up here. Yeah, it's it's a fun game, and I'm I'm really glad I got a chance to play it. Although my my journey to completing it was long and winding, um, <laughs> you were the one that actually uh, introduced me uh, to this game, or rather exhorted me to play it, which uh, I thank you for doing. Oh, you're quite welcome. Always happy to recommend a game or two. How I found this game was through a twitter tradition called screenshot saturdays a hashtag where indie devs and game developers in general put out screenshots or gifs of their game every saturday in order to show it off to the development community and hopefully get more followers because you know us indie devs always scrounging around for more attention Uh, (laughs) but this was a game that i found when i started up my twitter account again for moonroof studios And during one screenshot Saturday, I saw this interesting looking tactical battle being displayed. Um, So started following the developer, kept seeing updates from him that I liked. And when he finally released the game, I picked it up on the Switch and had a ball with it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm not an aspiring Twitterati or anything, but um, I had my eye on this game just because it got some um, some good press when it came out for a variety of reasons, uh, representation, um, you know, solid options for accessibility and, and pixel art that uh, is oh so good. But um, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I'm glad I, I played it, although it, <laughs> as I said, it it was a game that I, I didn't make it through on my first, uh, first go. I, I bounced off after, you know, about eh, seven to 10 hours and then uh, came back and finished it. And I'm really glad I did, which we'll get into that. Alright, so this game was developed by Chevy Ray Johnson. It's been an indie game dev for a long time. Yeah, so I guess uh, being in the industry for, I guess, 20, 25 years, I I heard on a podcast, uh, the Eggplant podcast, excellent podcast, check it out, um, Eggplant, The Secret Lives of Games, but that he has been developing indie games since he was 13 years old. Um, And and given he's in, I think, mid to late 30s now, I'd put it around 25 years. So, um, yeah, this guy's worked all over the place, a variety of indie games, contract programmer for Bandai Namco, and, you know, developed middleware libraries even, such as uh, Flashpunk. Very uh, long-storied career, from from what I understand. And um, <clears throat> this is uh, the first commercial release of, of Chevy's that I have personally played, but I am glad to have done so. But Chevy, you know, given his connections in the industry, was able to you know, work with a few really interesting people to add some flourishes to, to Eichenfell that I really connected with. For instance, A Shell in the Pit, uh, which is a sound design studio, uh, was able to come in and help with 
the sound effects for spells, hits, etc. And boy, it, it makes a difference. These are some great sound effects. And of course, the music by Ivy and Sarasu of Steven Universe fame. definitely really loved the music um it was a cool mix of kind of acoustic instruments with chip tunes and a very good blend of those and of course some good hip-hop beats as well uh but i'm not surprised you noticed the sound design in this game because i don't it's a perpetual blind spot for me <laughs> as a player and a game developer but uh really cool do you know has um a shell in the pit have they uh done any other work i would have heard of yeah, a variety of games they've worked for. Um, some of the bigger ones that I recognize immediately, Untitled Goose Game, A Night in the Woods, Sneaky Sasquatch. Hmm. Uh, Sneaky Sasquatch, by the way, recent Apple Arcade, uh, really cool game. So yeah, there's there's a there's a bunch of interesting stuff on their website. I you know recommend just Google a shell in the pit. You can check them out. They have uh, a very fun website too. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, and and you know like you mentioned, Ivy and Sarasu, um, accomplished musicians in their own right with a you know large many season television deal. Apparently, had always wanted to be uh, video game music composers, and hmm. you know this was their chance. So um, they did a excellent job with this soundtrack and you know i'm sure we'll play a bunch of it throughout the cast um so please enjoy that quite agree and as a matter of fact there was a recent album put out by ivy and sarashu uh that actually inspired us to go pick up katamari damashi because mm-hmm. we loved their cover of it so much or at least brian recognized it i had never played katamari before that so they inspired a good podcast from us amen yeah. To that end, maybe we should talk a little bit more about uh, the game at hand, Eichenfell, what exactly this game is all about. Um, it puts you in the uh, shoes of Merit Hildegard, who travels to magical boarding school of Eichenfell to find her missing sister, Safina. Uh, she's what's called an ordinary or non-magical person, but soon develops pyromancy as she enters Eichenfell. So from there, you meet a you know, colorful cast of characters uh, and explore the halls of the school to figure out what happened to your sister, make new friends, and uh, uncover the secrets of the school. Quick aside on pronunciation, is it Merit? I always pronounced it Merit in my head. I did too, but I I heard the developer call her Merit, so I'm going with that. <laughs> oh, mind blown. <laughs> Speaking of pronunciation, um, I always thought it was Eichenfell, in my mind but then there's this game has some vocal tracks to it and on the vocal tracks it gets pronounced Ickenfell was another mind-blowing moment for me <laughs> so that's that it is interesting the you're you're talking about the uh the vocal track for Ima um which is an awesome sort of hip-hop track and it uh, it does say, you know, Ickenfell, the fight for Ickenfell. Go ahead, grab my hand, be patient, and you might live to tell. Everyone of future generations, how we fought for Ickenfell. Sometimes I get the blues, the news gets me depressed. I think it's one of those things where the developer doesn't really care which way it's pronounced, or, you know, maybe I'm projecting that onto them. But um, Chevy said Eichenfell, pronounced that way in an interview. So, again, that's just what I'm going with, given it's the developer. But um, 
Well, it's not even yourself projecting over here. I remember, you know, I said I followed his Twitter account. He said that every member of that team had a different pronunciation for Eichenfell, and he's just decided all of them are canon. Perfect. Yay, it's, uh, you know what? It's a magical place. Uh, it is possible <laughs> to hold two conflicting thoughts in your head at the same time. Um, welcome to the 21st century. <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk about Eichenfell, which to me is always going to be the canonical pronunciation, developer thoughts aside. Uh, but in the world of Eichenfell, it is, um, you're going to this magical boarding school. And if you hear magical boarding school and you think Harry Potter, you're not wrong. And you're not alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, there's definitely a huge um, comparison to be made here. And I think... It's one that's worth exploring because, you know, Harry Potter is one of the more ubiquitous things that a millennial will experience, I think. Um, and Eichenfell is very different from it, right? They, you know, it, it's not muggles, which is an excluded sort of class of people to wizarding folk, but it's ordinaries, which are non-magical folks. It's not derogatory. Um they're still included in, in the world, right? Like there's talk of like, hey, we can develop these alchemies and ordinary people will be able to utilize it. And it just, it seems a lot more welcoming and open-minded than the more like dogmatic rules-based wizarding world of Harry Potter to me. I agree with that. Uh, this game definitely wears its inclusivity on its sleeve. Um, you mentioned the representation aspect of this game before, which I'm sure we'll get into more later. But even in terms of like the muggles versus ordinaries that's a good point you had i think it makes sense right like if you're beings that are able to expand their mind with magic and control the forces of nature like it probably behooves you to um think a little bit outside the box from standard you know the very standard human experience <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah i guess uh i'm thinking back to a paragraph i read written by rami ismail um you know indie development consultant and wonderkind in his own right. And I, I want to read this quote because I think it's really good. Um, Eichenfell is exactly what it wants to be. It's a magical school game that uh, rides on a queer, vulnerable, honest aesthetic, wondering about identity and expectations and love and trauma. Compared implicitly against the almost dogmatic rigidity of Harry Potter's Hogwarts, Eichenfell creates a fictional world of magic, a world you'd expect to be open-minded and welcoming, but Eichenfell manages to ensure real world and lives of actual humans are not excluded or exempted for being different. And, you know, if that doesn't just, in a nutshell, say exactly what I just said before, I don't know what does. Um, Rami, thank you for that explanation. <laughs> so I think the Harry Potter 2 versus Eichenfell comparison i took it in kind of a different direction uh because you know it's not far from anybody's minds when they're playing this game i'm sure uh, but this game definitely is more inclusive than the world of harry potter more welcoming uh but also i think the plot and the setup of the game plays off of harry potter i mm. mean the way they set up safina in the game, the missing sister that you're trying to find, you find these memory shard flashbacks of what she's been doing in the school. And a lot of the things kind of track with Harry Potter. Like, uh, Safina is a troublemaker. She's a brilliant student. Uh, she has like this blonde nemesis, a uh, blonde white haired nemesis who's trying to foil her plans. 
Yeah, but she's not a white supremacist, which is very, very. <laughs> <laughs> no, she is not. Uh, but even like uh, they have this kind of twist in that formula where, uh, you know, Safina's getting into dangerous stuff and the game is like twisting that around. She's not the hero of the story. Like maybe her intentions are good, but the things that she are, is doing are uh, kind of destructive. And the game plays this off with like um, her sister, uh, Marit. Um, you find out early on that Safina never mentioned she had a sister even. And mm. it's kind of like the first strike against her. Uh, but it kind of sets her up to be this Harry Potter hero type. Um, that you know and expect because, you know, you've seen Harry Potter or a dozen other uh, books that go like that, a dozen other stories. Um, but then it turns out that Safina is not right and she's not in the right about the choices she's making. And I think this game was much more interesting for subverting that kind of general protagonist of these boarding school stories. I mean, if you look at harry potter the protagonist of harry potter through the eyes of any other character in that story they probably see him in much the same way as we are seeing safina in this <laughs> so yeah i i think that that is very much an al or you know an illusion they're meaning to make and giving you a new perspective on it um so I absolutely agree with you. And I think Safina as the Harry Potter in this character and you specifically not inhabiting that character uh, and rather taking a, a microscope to exactly, you know, what their what their actions are bringing about is an interesting lens to take. And I'm glad it's been sort of shown here. There's two sides to every story or more sides to every story. <laughs> well, even think about uh, think about Harry Potter itself, like. The most interesting character was not Harry Potter. Um, I mean, you can make your arguments for this or that, but I'd say like Snape was a dozen times more interesting than Harry was. Yeah, definitely much more like it gave you a lot more to think about than Harry did. Like Harry's motivations were fairly on their sleeve. Um, mm -hmm. Most of the main characters in that story's motivations were very much on their sleeve. It's a children's novel. You know, that's not surprising. But you're right that they were able to give these more nuanced stories around the, the sides. And I think this game decided to put them in the center, which I'm glad they did. Mm -hmm. But to that end, there's other uh, parallels as well. You know, we have the coven in this game represented by Imin and Baz, who, um, are, you know, are sort of like a Ministry of Magic type people from what I understand. But it seems a little more loose. They don't really go into what the coven is all about. But uh, basically, what you need to know is Baz is the badass one, and um, <laughs> Ibn is Ibn is the blowhard who is just sort of a goofball. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, he's played for kind of comic relief. Um, he's supposed to be this all-powerful, world-beating mage, but you mm -hmm. duel him early on as an inexperienced witch with merit. Uh, sorry, merit, um, and <laughs> defeat him pretty easily. His uh, attacks are more like annoying mosquitoes than anything else yeah it is it is funny and they are sort of played for comic relief for most of the game uh emphasis on most of the game as we'll see later on you mentioned the grid or the combat against uh 
Ibn and Baz as sort of an early fight, but uh, let's take the opportunity to talk a little bit about this game's combat, because uh, it is pretty interesting and innovative. Um, there's a lot of things that you've seen before here, but I don't think I've ever seen together, right? We have mm-hmm. grid-based combat, 3 by 12 and also a timing mechanic, a la uh, Mario RPG series. Yeah, kind of like a chocolate and peanut butter thing. And I think the one of the most interesting things about this combat system for me was that grid. Like, I've played, you know, Final Fantasy Tactics, and it's ilk. Um, but the grids there are very square and very kind of like wide open fields. This was much more one-dimensional in how it was. It was 3 by 12 so you could go up a square or down a square, but you are going backwards or forwards. It was very much oriented as a kind of single-dimensional thing with an extra line here or there to add some tactical possibilities to it. It felt to me more like a normal turn-based RPG system, you know, with timing mechanics, but with lanes rather mm. than a, a traditional grid-based combat system, right? Like That would be a good way to describe it, yeah. Yeah, th- three options isn't really grid. It's it's three lanes, right? And then there's, you know, up and down. I like this. I'm calling it lane-based combat now. Yeah, it, it made more sense to understand it that way, to me at least, especially because a lot of moves that you have uh, worked in straight lines or, you know, worked down a lane, uh, so to speak. But mm-hmm. another thing I really liked about this combat is uh, you did not have MP, right? You are a wizard. Uh, trying to manage MP <laughs> would would just be a pain in the ass. And, you know, I, the developer in an interview called this a constraint, but I just think it's a feature. You know, it's one less resource to manage and allows you to focus more on tactical decisions rather than the resource management aspect. I mean, you and me have both played D&D before. If you're a wizard and you're trying to whack something with a stick then you're not a very good wizard, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, you, you failed in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> and even beyond that, if you're going by doing things as the rule of cool, then, okay, if you're a badass stick wielder, then sure, this could be a cool moment. But you're a wizard. You're not supposed to be a martial arts expert, and you probably shouldn't be trying that. I liked this a lot, that there was no MP. Every attack was a magical attack, a magical spell cast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every every attack is special too. Like, there's no default attack, right? Even like the first spell you get for each character is characteristically different between them, and there isn't just like the default. You know, this hits one square for three spaces in front of you or whatever. Then every character has it. Every character has their own version of their first attack, and all of them are different. I like that. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, there's no, not even just the default initial skills and spells but um i don't think there's a repeated spell anywhere in the player party nothing shared between two characters Mm -hmm. and i want to call out another thing about the the combat specifically in regards to the timing based uh, aspect of it um you know there's a lot of mario rpg influence here small numbers for one um you know i don't think i had any number on my party get much over like 110 120 throughout the entire thing be that health defense attack what have you or the damage i was dealing i'll agree but small numbers were never a mario rpg thing yeah that's that's fair but um on the timing based aspect of it the the this game does it in an interesting way right you have three gradations you have oops which is you missed it you have good which is you got close and you have great which is the perfect of this game and that dichotomy is um 
hard uh, to, <laughs> to, you know, I, maybe I just have slow reaction time now, but um, apparently it's a 400 millisecond uh, window that allows you to do it. And, um, you know, I was able to do it pretty regularly once I understood attacks, but uh, there were a few things that I didn't quite nail ever. And it was a little tough for me. Some of these um, animation windows just didn't quite click for me. I would say that for the most part, this game has good anticipation in its animations uh, in terms of telling you when you should press the button. However, when you got a new skill, especially for some of these, there there was a big trial period you'd have to put them through in order to find out when the timing was supposed to happen. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. And while I'm, you know, continuing on my negative streak <laughs> for this game, <laughs> I have a I have a couple quibbles with this battle system, which, uh, yes, I mentioned up top, maybe put me off the game for a little bit. One okay. is these battles are too long. They are way too long. A JRPG to me um, lives and dies by the brevity of its battles. And in this game, like yes, you're you, it's a tactics battle. I get it. They they take a little longer, but you know. When we talk about music later, I noticed that we had songs with lyrics that began looping two, three, four times over the course of a battle. And that just, to me, was just like the hourglass turning over and over again. And (laughs) I, you know, I don't love really long JRPG battles unless there's something really interesting going on. And this game's battle system is interesting, but it's not that interesting. (laughs) Yeah, uh, there were some definitely some memorable battles, some interesting twists they would do in the formula, some ways to kind of wreck your preconceived notions. Like, I really loved their notion of traps. Uh, This would be where you or an enemy character would select a tile on the battlefield and it would become booby-trapped. And if anybody moved onto it, then, you know, they're movement stops instantly their action stops instantly the turn ends and they take damage very useful when you can kind of figure out where the enemies are trying to go to because that not only damages them it also denies them an attack and then it can kind of constrain where the enemies are able to place themselves without triggering the traps i agree with you and i think it's very interesting that positioning becomes extremely important in this uh in this um, battle system. I think the three by twelve specifically helps with that. You know, if you were trying to constrain someone in like a four by four or six by six, there's too many options. But three lanes, you know, you can block off a lane, right? Like you can, if you have two characters that can set traps, your opponent has a two and three chance of you know losing their turn if they approach you too closely, um, mm-hmm. which is cool. However, they undercut this later on. Um, as soon enemies get ranged attacks that are way over your casting range of your traps and then also they can fly so Ah. they just bypass the traps entirely so you know good idea again the execution to me lacked a little bit um how i also think the bosses in this game are just way too much of health sponges you know those battles lasted far too long in most cases to me um and it was really only by dint of having a fuck ton of health items that i was able to, (laughs) to beat most of them I can think of a few boss battles that lasted too long. I think the star guy lasted too long. The one thing that I really didn't like, and it's my biggest strike against the game, is the final boss battle, which, oh my gosh. I mean, I started playing 
that game late. I thought I was just doing the one final boss, boss battle, um, but it was like past midnight already when I beat Aldra, and then this whole multi-stage final boss battle happens. Um, this was my biggest gripe with the game was just how long the last boss battle took. Well, Josh, have I got news for you? Uh, because I never even really beat that boss. Uh, but I did see the end of the game, however, because mm -hmm. this game has excellent accessibility options. <laughs> Let me go over the litany of very good accessibility options this game has and the ones that I made use of. Um, you know, they, they have some fairly standard ones that I think are prerequisites to being a good RPG this the, in this day and age, which is one, there's a ton of save points. You're never far from a save point. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Two, auto good. This was helpful for me for that timing window thing, right? You will never get an oops. You'll always just get the middle of the road good, close enough. Um, I think this game's timing boxes, again, I said, didn't make a lot of sense to me, or maybe I just suck at it, but whatever. Um, this helped me in a lot of battles, but then the kicker, they will let you auto victory any fight in the game or any stage of a fight in the game. If, um, you are just not getting it. Um, so there are two very good uses for this one. Um, obviously if there's a boss, you just can't beat as in the last boss of this game, which again, I think is just a little too onerous. You can see the end of this game using that, but two, I used this heavily on fights that I knew I could beat, and it would just take me five to ten minutes to do so. Hmm. You know, I could I could perfect this fight. I don't need to do this again. I'm going to wave the, the white flag and get the experience points and move on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is, j <laughs> this is like everyone's biggest critique of RPGs or JRPGs is that you have to grind, you know? It's, uh, I don't want to keep tappa-tap-tapping A and just killing these rote enemies. This game allows you to just say, all right, I win this fight now. Give me the XP and I'll move on. <laughs> I got you. It's an interesting game design philosophy. I mean, um, you're saying that the game isn't so much in the combat, which is a big change from the other things. Um, or you're saying the essential parts of the game aren't in the combat. Um, and you're not holding back the story as like a merit badge you can get. Un achievement unlocked. You get to see what happens afterwards. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying, is there's more to see here than the combat, right? And I think this would not work for a game whose writing, characterization, and story weren't as strong as Eichenfels, right? Um, if the only thing you're there for is the combat, then the combat better be fucking good. Hmm. But for Eichenfels, at least in my opinion, you're not just there for the combat. You're there for the stories, you're there for the characters, you're there to see how everything plays out, you're there to uncover the mystery of the school and the magic in the world. The combat is the icing on the cake. And I'm glad it's there when it's interesting. But when it ceases to be interesting, I'm glad I can bypass it. I think that this kind of shows the innovation that you can get in indie games. I mean, could you imagine a Mario game where you could walk up to a platform and just say, yes, I'm done with this. Please jump for me. <laughs> um, like, well. I imagine proposing this to an executive at Nintendo and they just sh dropping their jaw and being like, clear out your desk, please. <laughs> well, there's a difference here, though, right? Like, for Mario, the joy of those games is in the execution of the the platforming, right? Like, making that jump is the thing. And, and that's not to say that Nikenfell winning that really hard fight is not also joyful. 
But there's like, there's an extra dimension in this game, which is that story. And to me, the enjoyment I was going to get and the satisfaction I was going to get out of beating that final boss did not outweigh the joy that I felt when I saw the ending of the game. The game also does an interesting thing with um, accessibility modes in terms of content warnings. There's a couple areas in this game where they um, make mention to, you know, uh, self-harm or, you know, there's gore or there's uh, mention of depression, things of that nature. And, you know, having that able to be forewarned and the ability to bypass it as well is also a nice thing that this game does. In addition to that, they do their best to um, alleviate photosensitivity issues in the game, but even their menu says the game will try to alleviate photosensitivity issues. That's not a guarantee, which is to say, you know, no one knows exactly what people are going to be sensitive to, and this game you know, understands that. Excellent accessibility options in this game for sure definitely the most accessible rpg i've ever played one of the most accessible games in general well kind of um that instant victory option is such a different take on what makes rpgs interesting yeah no like i i still feel like i got a a good a, a great amount of joy out of this game but part of the reason that that is true is because i was able to say enough is enough at certain times right there's there is such thing as too much of a good thing um, and this game's combat is really good, but you know, you can always have too much of a good thing. Um, and this game understands that and solves for it. One of the interesting things I've heard is about game design as the management of learning in the players. And this game has a very unique battle system that the lane based combat, as Brian put so well earlier, uh, introduces a lot of new variations a lot of new strategies to the player um but when the player isn't learning anything if they're fighting an enemy they fought already and they know how to beat this enemy but it's just a matter of spending the three minutes or four minutes to do the proper tactics in that case then i think it's good to have that skipping option um so you know on that point (laughs) the reason i'm okay with moving past the game's admittedly great battle system is because I do want to experience the next thing in its very good writing. And there's a couple things that I think this game does particularly well in its writing and characterization. And one is the emotional intelligence of the characters and the way that they behave like real humans, and also in the representation that they have on the page. Um, To me, the characters always in this game seem to have like a more nuanced view of the rest of the characters in the game than even I did, you know, as an outside observer, the so-called omniscient game player. Mm -hmm. Um, The whole thing is an exercise in empathy, right? Like the cast is always thinking of like, what are the other people in my party thinking right now? For instance, early on, Perticia is rescued by Merit. But Merritt apologizes to her because she didn't get consent to rescue her uh, because she said, don't touch me, like in a, in a scene right before that because there was some you know high emotions and tension going on. Mm-hmm. And that to me is like a level of putting yourself in a character's shoes, multiple character shoes at once, in fact, that I don't think I've seen in, in very many games. 
the game certainly does have a high level of empathy. Um, and I think that it goes with its inclusivity as well. Um, to In order to be welcoming to other people, you have to do your best to understand where they're coming from. Yeah, it, it's very true. Like, um, you know, early on in the game, your Meredith is your, your party leader, right? And she's mm-hmm. young, brash, impulsive, driving everyone forward, motivating everyone. But later on, Ima, um, who is a more senior student, takes the the role as the lead as Merit starts to become a little more stressed out by the situation. You know, as the as the game escalates, your sort of lead character also, you know, becomes a more senior person who is able to handle the stress of the situation. Aima, who is like, a, a, I guess, a graduate student in Eichenfell parlance, uh-huh. is, um, you know, she is always just supremely right all the time to be, or to to put in contrast with the teenagers who are all in your party beforehand, who are, you know, like I said, very impulsive, very, um, you know, they're infuriating, but they're teenagers, so they're, they're meant to be infuriating. <laughs> so <laughs> the game's writing does that very well. This game definitely had a very empathetic perspective. Um, I'll tell you the one part of the game's plot where that didn't really work for me was at the end of the game. Um where Safina and Merritt were talking to each other and hashing out their differences. I felt like it tried to wrap things up a little too well. Um, Like it tried to close those threads a little too tidily. I would agree with you, except for the fact that at the end of the game, Merritt does not forgive Safina for all of the things she did and the lack of mentioning her to her friends and colleagues. Um, but she says, Hey, it's going to be a process. And I think that was very real, right? Like I've never said that to a person like, no, I don't forgive you just yet, but I can imagine a situation where I'd want to. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I don't know, maybe that's like just part of this game's hyper realization of emotional intelligence. Like if you could really say exactly what you felt all the time and be that emotionally honest, what would you say? And maybe it is that I don't forgive you right now, but I'll work towards it. Mm Mm-hmm. To that end, the game is also sort of uh, (laughs) hyper-extant in its representation, right? Like, this game has uh, everything under the sun. Uh, Gay, ace, black, white. Um, You know, it it really is like a very queer-centric story. And I think that is pretty awesome because, you know, (laughs) I mean... You're telling me the students, the faculty, all the side characters are some form of LGBTQ? Uh, sure, okay. I mean, that's no more unrealistic than anything else I've seen in this game, uh, given we're in a magical sporting school. So, sure, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's not common where you find a game where, like, you know, you and me, straight white males, have no representation in that. But I think that's absolutely not a problem at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a next next thing in my notes, right? There's not a single white straight person, and to to that end, like, you know, we've had 30 years of that being the single only point of representation. So we've only got another, you know, uh, 29 years to go, and we can balance the scales. <laughs> I've um, heard from 
through the Twitter account that Chevy had kind of a non-binary personality himself, or at least somewhere on some LGBTQ spectrum. So he's, you know, he's writing from a place of things he knows about. I do know they brought a consultant on, which is never a bad thing to do when you have such a diverse cast and crew of characters um, in order to make sure you aren't inadvertently continuing any stereotypes. Oh, absolutely. You know, you do that inadvertently if you don't try not to. It's a great point, and I'm glad to hear that that's the case. You know, having having consultants that do these types of things and make sure that, you know, uh, people aren't misgendered or there's not a, um, you know, just some sort of faux pas that maybe you or I wouldn't even detect is um, is super key. And I think, honestly, to that point, we really do need to rely on the perspectives of people that are living this day in and day out uh, a lot more. I guess if there's... Um... Like maybe you've heard some hesitation from me about this. I guess part of what I feel is that a lot of the press for this game celebrated it for its representation, and rightly so. It's not often that you see, um, you know, non-straight white males in video games. It doesn't happen often enough, and um, examples of that should be celebrated, and this one justly was. However, I feel like out of the... When this game first came out, it was mentioned so heavily that it it's almost like this isn't, you know, this is a great thing about the game, but this isn't why you should play the game. It's for an example of representation. These characters are characters first. Uh, they have interesting nuances, interesting things. They react to each other in interesting ways. And I loved the writing for that. I loved how they bounced off of each other and you know like they happen to be gay or non-binary or what have you and it wasn't like um i felt like relative to the amount of coverage in the press uh the amount of character building in this game specifically related to those items um like uh between uh gilda and merit as being lesbians as opposed to just being in a romantic relationship. Um, Like, I feel like the romantic relationship part of it was the interesting part, and it just so happened that it was um, Mm -hmm. gay characters. That's exactly the way I would have put it. Um, The fact that this game is doing a great job with representation of of queerness and um, non-binary perspectives is a huge plus. But it's not the reason why the writing is good. The writing yeah. would be good no matter which um, perspective you were to take with this. It wouldn't be as interesting because it's not spotlighting things you don't normally see as much, but it would still be exemplary game writing, right? I'd agree with that. So obviously, we're here for uh, the writing, but the writing is is nothing without the characters, and this is a very character-driven game. Uh, It was originally actually supposed to be a Zelda-like, according to Chevy, but um, the story dictated that it couldn't be, because there were too many instances where characters had to be together in in every aspect of it, be that in battle, be that in um, a conversation. So they turned it into a party-based RPG, which... (laughs) 
you know, I, I think made a lot of sense, but it's just hilarious to me that like this game, which we've already talked about how interesting and innovative its battle system was, might have been the same thing as a Zelda-like. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting to think like you're trying to design a game and then you're like, no, you know, I need this thing for the story. I need people to be together more. So I'm just going to change the whole genre. Yeah, it, it really is like um, mechanics and service of writing, which is a thing that we've called out as being very good in a variety of instances. Um, I'm trying to remember the latest one, but Undertale comes to mind. Uh, to that end, the characters here are, are awesome. And uh, honestly, I think your sort of player stand-in character, Merit, is maybe one of the least interesting of those, right? Um, she is... Uh, <laughs> Harry Potter's younger sister, I guess. Uh. <laughs> I mean, I think that's an interesting character design right there. Like, uh, she starts off, she doesn't have any magical powers. She gets them, oh, what's the mystery behind that we got to solve? Um, and you're learning about this whole magical world through her eyes, uh, through someone who hasn't seen it before. I think the thing that I was getting at with her being the least interesting is she has the least backstory because everyone else in this story, you know, uh, Petronella, the Ornell, is an alchemy student who is, you know, a friend of Safina, your sister as Merit, and Rook, who is um, the second person to join your party aside from Nell. You know, that Safina, Rook, and Nell are like the trio, right? Like, it strikes me that they are sort of the the Harry Potter, Hermione, Ron, and Harry trio, right? Like, mm-hmm. if we were to make a direct analogy. Um and Merit is just sort of this person coming in and like trying to absorb all of the previous relationships of these people. And it, you know, it's a it's a brilliant way to frame the thing because like you're coming in, you don't know any of these people, and you're trying to understand who they all are, and you're learning all of these things about them third hand through these memory shards that you mentioned earlier, Josh, which really do a great job of sort of um, exposing vulnerable moments that maybe shouldn't have been seen. And I think like the Petronella, Rook, and Safina trio memories that you see are some of the most interesting for that reason. Oh, yeah. There's a memory you find, I think, before you get to the spirit orb where you learn that um, Safina and Rook kind of ignored Petronella for about a year because we were kind of getting together and didn't want her around as a third wheel. And I think, you know, that goes back to like my idea of, oh, you find out your protagonist, uh, the hero of the story, Safina, isn't as like, she's not making good choices. She's not doing things right. And you're learning this about her. Uh, you're questioning it as her sister Merit is questioning it as well. I felt like there was a lot of good identification between the setup of Safina and both you and Merit learning about what happened at the same time. Yeah, it's a very good point. And, you know, Rook, who Safina eventually sort of started a relationship with, you know, he is a non-binary person who uses he, him pronouns and you know, sort of the nerd of the group. Um, mm-hmm. I, I guess you could say this is like uh, the Hermione, although it's a, you know, a black non-binary dude. But then there's, uh, you know, Petronella is sort of the shy one, uh, but also like very smart, the healer. And you eventually meet Gilda, who is another student, but begins 
Uh, and I think Gilda is honestly probably one of my favorite arcs of the whole game. Begins as an antagonist, and every time she shows up, the energy of the entire story just cranks up a notch, right? Like she is just so, so extra. Um, it's great. <laughs> um, Very high energy. Yeah, even during cutscenes, she's always just fidgeting and swaying and, like, can't keep still. And, of course, she's the lightning mage who just, like, um, you know, she gets new powers as a result of the events of the story as well, just like Merit does. And she is just, like, thrilled about it. She is just so jazzed to be, like, a lightning wizard. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, like, she, you see in some flashbacks that she was a very kind of, like, mediocre to poor student, like someone that everyone else made fun of for being so terrible at potions and everything else. Mm -hmm. And now she can like literally call lightning bolts with a flick of her wrist. And (laughs) she, she is just so jazzed about it. I know I'd be jazzed too. (laughs) (laughs) Fair point. Um, But she's also just like um, on her sleeve, head over heels in gay love for uh, merit, which is also hilarious to watch. In her very own kind of, like, Gilda way, like, very fidgety and very high energy about it. Yeah, oh, it, it's it's very endearing. Um, she's on, I think she's my favorite character in the game, just because she's so, like, one-note positive and fun the whole time. Like, I was never disappointed to see a line from Gilda show up at the bottom of the screen. <laughs> I gotcha. I think for my favorite character, I'd have to go with Partesia. Like, the Draco Malfoy that you find out is like, oh used to be best friends with Safina and they would get in hijinks together before stuff happened and Safina found new friends instead. Um, You find Pertesia first. She's kind of possessing her cat because her own body is stuck in a mirror. Yeah, Pertesia's an interesting character too who has many different layers throughout the story. Like at first she's like dead set against Safina because of their past and then like you're made to understand that they had, you know, prior relationship. And then you you further understand that Saf was the cause of, you know, why she had to go away from the school for a year due to an injury. And, you know, it's just sort of like, the, I think the story of this game is really about Safina's collateral damage that she's caused mm-hmm. as she's at Eichenfell. And... You know, Pertesia is like the key recipient of that damage for sure. One of the low-key touching moments for me was during the course of the game, you find out how good Pertesia is at playing piano and how much she loves it. But due to her hijinks at the school with Safina, her parents made her give it all up. Yeah, Safina is definitely the most like sad story of the game too. Although, you know, if you stick around long enough, you will find the happy ending in that. And it's it's awesome. I'm really glad that, um, I, I, you know, one of my favorite parts of the ending. I'm sure we'll talk about the ending at some point, but Pertesia's arc is also a very good one. Um, I don't want to dismiss Ima. I talked about her a little bit earlier with her uh, hip-hop song she and her, her being sort of the de facto leader as Merit becomes uh, less capable of doing so. But Ima is fascinating to me because... 
Um, one, she is uh, in a different class than the rest of the characters. Uh, she, she's faculty, whereas everyone else in, in the story is students. She's the adult in the room, right? In every situation when the stakes are real and concrete, she's the one that makes the decision. And a very clever thing this game does with that is they also make her the only one that uses neo-pronouns, such as Z and Zier. Mm-hmm. Um, so they basically give that characteristic to the person in the room that has the most authority. You know, uh, a neo-pronoun using Z, Zier is the leader of the group. And I think that's also like a representational coup d'etat. Agree with you about that, but I actually found Ima or Ima to be one of the less interesting characters, and I think it was because she was an adult and had more things under control. Like you said earlier, she had the right answer for everything. There just wasn't a character arc there. There isn't a flaw there. I agree. She's she's noble but good. Um. <laughs> <laughs> she's noble but also good. <laughs> yeah (laughs) no i got you just less drama less uh ground for drama from someone who's so well put together yeah i I hear you and that's meant to highlight like her maturity right as i understand Mm -hmm. it and you know when you're comparing an adult to a teenager you're bound to get that but i i understand where you're coming from like a little bit of struggle from her would have been nice to see just uh you know uh, represent the fact that everything doesn't get easier once you graduate high school. <laughs> you know, I think um, the biggest dramatic part she had, or the uh, part with the most drama she had, was when she decided to accept being headmistress of the school. And it's like, oh, oh, don't mind if I do. You know, it's like, oh, I'll take this gigantic <laughs> job and responsibility and prestige that goes with it. That's right. It's basically like if someone goes up to an adjunct and says, hey, you want to be dean of this college? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what I want to see is more of the adjunct lifestyle. I want to see her working three jobs outside of her professorship to make things, to make ends meet. Hey, you don't know what she's doing with those magic paintbrushes. (laughs) (laughs) Like it's a lost cause, but I'm steady brushing off my haters. Something like I'm Bob Ross. Go ahead, grab my hand, be patient, and you might... Well, one character, one adult character that is certainly not as well put together as Ima is, is Aldra, mm-hmm. the headmistress of the school. That's right. Aldra is interesting because she, uh, as over the course of the story, you understand that she is repressing a ton of pain. Right, she is a person who has uh, attained a modicum of success or a real measure of success in the world of Vickenfell. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that and of her past experiences, she has found a coping mechanism. And that is blood magic. Now, this is kind of like, um, I think, where the game gets to be some of its most metaphorical. I mean, uh, who has not been through a grieving situation where they wished that they could just get rid of the grief they could just get rid of the experience and aldra because she has blood magic is actually able to physically remove the pain from her body the pain that she's feeling and put it into this cauldron of blood or pain or sorrow or whatever it is yeah setting up a nice boss fight where you get to fight her pain elemental as a it's a good kind of like making the characters 
struggles inherent inside the story and inside the game mechanics. Like you're fighting a pain elemental. It's not a fire elemental or it's not something, uh, it's not an earth elemental. It's something, pardon the pun, more elemental than that. <laughs> no, you're, you're absolutely right. It is a nice way of sort of making the emotional concrete. Um, but to that end, if this game wanted to make an absolutely impossible boss fight, they would have made a crush elemental because everyone in this game has uh, <laughs> a, a crush at the heat of a thousand suns and cannot possibly stop acting on it. <laughs> I mean... We've been through teenager dumb through puberty before. It might have been a half a lifetime ago, but yeah, those uh, those crushes were big. Oh yeah, they're real. <laughs> um, it's it's reliably infuriating uh, to watch it on screen, and you know I just can't wait until I see my own daughter dealing with this because <laughs> I, I'm sure I'm just ready for that fresh hell whenever it comes about. <laughs> Something to look forward to. Oh yeah, I'm sure it'll be great. Well, speaking of crushes, one of the ones that was um, less hidden and less a thousand sunsy was Ibn and Bax. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting uh, couple of characters and always appearing, almost always appearing together. Um, as we mentioned up top, Ibn, sort of hapless, um, apparently like most revered and um, scary wizard of the coven, uh, is always accompanied by his handler, Bax. Baz. I, we're unclear on the pronunciation of that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, Baz is sort of, you know, I thought of him as like a butler at first, but it turns out Baz is an extremely accomplished wizard of like shadow magic and will and does not hesitate to fuck you up. Yeah, whereas on the other hand, Ibn is much more of a pushover when you do fight him. Except when you finally get to the end of the game where the stakes rise and Baz is uh, incapacitated by Eldra. This is part of the interminable last boss fight. Um, At the end of the game, you are trying to defeat Eldra, the headmistress, and uh, stop her misguided plan. It's not an evil plan, but a misguided plan of, of... that would um, end up destroying the world. And you do stop her, but in her rage, in her grief, um, the there's earthquakes being caused because this magical sapling is not free to die as it's supposed to do. And the earthquakes cause that cauldron of pain that Aldra has put all of her pain into, all of her grief, causes that to spill out and it returns to her. And when that happens, she kills Ibn's handler, Bax. Um, and Ibn goes mad with grief. And your final, final boss is fighting Ibn in the ghost realm, where you learn that he's not such a pushover. He just needs ghost magic. That's right. He he sort of goes feral, so to speak, and his wild magic tapping into the ghost realm is visited upon your party in a very wrathful way um you know he loses control it's it's a bad scene um but uh, you know as you when you when you do finally defeat him and backtracking a bit the whole goal of this fight is to 
sort of ensure that the seasons of magic change by allowing this sapling, which you are trying to rescue, um, to come back to the world to die, right? You are basically trying to maintain the order of the seasons, Mm -hmm. which is a, a very late realization, but you're basically trying to like, um, maintain the status quo, which is a weird message for this game in particular to be putting forth to me. <laughs> I mean, you could call you could look at it as maintain the status quo. But it's also allowing change. <laughs> Allow change, um, accept the cycle of life as it is. Yeah, yeah, that that's a good point. It's it's a message of acceptance, I suppose. It's an interesting way of framing what needs to be done, which is allow nature to take its course and don't stand in its way unnaturally. I think the what I would say the real message was was um not necessarily let nature take its course, but kind of an examination of grief and the different ways that that can make people make bad decisions like both the final bosses Eldra and Ibn were dealing with grief in their own unhealthy ways you're right that the whole story is really about all of the characters sort of learning to deal and cope with their emotions and confronting them you know we're seeing that with Merit and her sister we're seeing that with Rook Petronella and Fina with their a sort of trio friendship relationship. We're seeing that with Bibin and Bax. We're seeing that with uh, Eldra and Ifig, her uh, longtime lover. We're seeing that with everyone in this story. And the fact that this game's able to portray all of those emotions so well with just a very rudimentary uh, pixel art art style is really something. And I think that is a, a really big win for the game. I read somewhere that the portraits in this game were a late addition to it. Um, when you do dialogue, it shows you like a sprite, a pixel portrait of the character speaking, also with an, with an emotion. And, you know, the this isn't like your masterclass pixel art, but it's very effective in portraying the emotions. And showing those emotions is a very effective storytelling tool. Agreed. On the note of pixel art, um, this game has really great design on its characters. The animation is really clear. No character silhouette is identical. Which is a big thing with pixel art and character design in general. And there's a really great article that we'll link to from um, Chevy, the developer and, and pixel artist of the game, on you know how and why he designed the characters the way he did. Um, but to me, the really interesting thing here is that the decision for lower fidelity enabled so many other interesting things for the game. To me, it seems like the lower fidelity pixel art um, allowed them to focus on adding a bunch of animations. And to me, it really stuck out that in the battles and in the character portraits and dialogue and in the characters on screen, there were a lot of unique animations going on in this game. Mm -hmm. Um, over the course of it that you would only see in a specific situation and never again. I think this game's pixel art style is the kind that doesn't look so great in a screenshot necessarily. Uh, I think uh, Chevy's 
strengths artistically were in character design and in animations. I would agree with that. Um, the this <laughs> this game does not screenshot that great, but there's so much variety in what's going on on the screen that it really works in context. The facial expressions the characters are able to bring during a particular interaction are so good. Like Gilda squealing with joy when Merit transforms <laughs> and gets her magic powers back is hilarious. And like, it's it's very rare that you can get like uh, a belly laugh out of me from like a pixel art, you know, text box at the bottom of the screen, you know? Mm-hmm. But this game did it. Yeah, it did. And I think that's proof of the fact that this game's dialogue and pixel art are expressive and that those two are additive upon each other. You know, the facial expression detail is very high and the pixel to conveyance ratio here is off the charts in terms of like what Chevy is able to muster. High signal to pixel ratio. Absolutely. So we talked about some of the different characters in this game. I feel like it would be remiss for me not to mention my favorite characters, the Save Cats. Oh yeah. I mean, if there's any animal that characterizes this game, it is the Save Cat. (laughs) Now, Chrono Trigger had your little sparkly points you could go save at. Um, I've seen a dozen different save points in a dozen different games, but this one had my favorite ones. Uh, There's a cat sleeping under a tree or on top of a table, and you go and pet it, and you save the game doing that. Yeah, and it always sort of gives you uh, something like what you would see in Undertale. Like, you pet the cat, and it relaxes you. Or, (laughs) you know, in, in some very dire situations. You pet the cat, but you can't shake this uneasy feeling. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes, yeah. It was good kind of flavor text to throw on top of the situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really liked this. uh, I really liked this as a mechanic, and it it reminded me a lot of Undertale's, like, you see the XYZ, and it fills you with determination. Determination. Yeah. Um, Obviously, you know, Undertale has and always will have done this the best until the next person does. Hmm. But yeah, it, it's a nice uh, addition to this game for sure. Save cats up there with Undertale save points. Top five save points all time. Top five save points all time. All right, Josh, <laughs> let's run down the top five save points of all time. Now there's uh, actually some po- kind of post game or extra hidden content in this game, a couple of boss battles I want to highlight. Um, one of them is this all-powerful cat leader called the All-Cat, um, where if you don the ritual attire before you speak to him underneath the hidden dueling grounds, um, and the ritual cat attire is literally just like this huge cat outfit, cat ears and cat tail and magic kitty wand and things like that, uh, then you go into a battle with him. The other interesting post-boss battle, I think, was the uh, Spectres, uh, the Echoes, the Mirror fight, where you fight the same characters in your party, but they're the kind of self-doubting negative versions of themselves. Oh, interesting. Tell me more about that, because I don't think I, I experienced either of those fights. 
I didn't either, but I did some research on the game before we did the podcast. <laughs> um, so what it is, is you come across all of the party members, but it's kind of like the self-loathing uh, ideas the party has about each of themselves. Like um, uh, Safina, I'm sorry, um, Mer- Merit is wondering why like her sister never talked about her or abandoned her. Uh, Rook is being like, you know, people aren't going to like me, so I'm not going to like them first. Uh, Petronella doubts her own abilities uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, but I think it was it's good as a boss battle, a sort of extra bi- battle, because it reveals a little bit of extra storytelling about the characters. They have to conquer their own fears, their own self-negativity with uh, positivity before they can get out of that battle. That's interesting. I... I'm I'm glad that that's there. It seems like it it gives some good payoff to some of the buildup that this game does in terms of its story. And I think we should take a minute to talk about that story for a bit because this game has a really interesting story, but I do feel like it's a bit lumpy in terms of how it doles out things that you're interested in seeing or hearing. Now, by lumpy, what do you mean? I mean, there's a lot of shaggy dog in this game. Like, some t- in the first half of the game in particular for me, the pacing just seemed a little off. Um, it, it did seem like once you got into the school and Merritt was a pyromancer, that you were wandering around from place to place without really a clear plot for how to get to that end game of finding your sister for a long time. You know, you'd go to one place and they'd send you to another place so you could access the next place. You know, it just seemed like there was a lot of back and forth, but not a lot happening. And yeah, you did get to add a few people to your party along the way. But to me, even that took too long. You know, this is a game that to me had a lot of padding in the first four chapters. And then when it finally ties the unfulfilled threads together, the stakes are raised. And that was great. You know, the characters are good. The dialogue is good. But it just feels a little aimless for the first 10 or so hours. And I get it. It's an RPG. We've talked about this before, but yeesh. (laughs) No, I got you. I see what you mean. You feel like you might you aren't making progress with all the time you spent in the game in terms of the main find your sister quest. Yeah, I, I get it that we need to lay the groundwork and there's a ton of emotional stakes in this game that need to be sort of properly contextualized. But it's like a real dick punch to have to wait like 10 hours of a 15 hour game to have that pay off, you know? I will say, I will give my perspective on that first 10 hours, call it, uh, up until, say, the secret woods where you talk with the raven and all that. Yeah, the interesting part of the game for me was its world, was this kind of fantasy or fantastical world where it's magic so anything can happen. And I enjoyed exploring, like, the alchemy lab where you find out one of the professors is a giant blob of slime and you think you're going into a boss battle but nope they just want to give you a homework assignment or <laughs> you're going into the dorm rooms which are enchanted and uh do th- have their own special rules for how things work there like the um i would say finding a new building and being able to explore it and finding out the weird magic rules that apply to it sustained me for the first part of the game 
Yeah, I, I hear you. And we, we talked about the world building of this game being really good. And I think if there's anything here that's going to pull you through, it's that, you know, it's the illusions that are made in like dialogue, like Baz clearly being the superior wizard, but referring to Oxley as, you know, chosen or, you know, <laughs> Safina has a hot sister. you know it's just like uh, i I don't know there's there's a bunch of interesting things going on in um in in the dialogue and in like snide illusions or you know passing illusions by the characters in the game that make you think oh man i really want to know more about this world but then like you're just there there is like an element of fetch questiness to all of the things you're doing for the first 10 hours before like you said the stakes are raised and i think to me this happened when you have the duel where it's Ibn Bax and Gilda versus your party. And, you know, this is at the Summerstone, which is basically like the thing you've been finding, the source of magic for the university. You have that duel mm-hmm. and the, it's epic. There's a, a vocal rap hip hop track going on during it. It's it's good. It's really good, but it repeats too much once again because this game's battles are too long. You know, I think that's more of a quality of vocal tracks of games rather than the particular battle. Like if you told me a big boss fight in a JRPG was going to take 20 minutes, shrug my shoulders. But it's more noticeable when you have vocal tracks repeating lyrics that you've heard before. So I think that's on their choice to do vocal tracks, which I want to talk about in a little bit. I, I was going to say, I absolutely agree with you, and I think that's on the developers. But yeah, we can save it for when we talk about the music. Um, but yeah, that that was a great fight. And I think it was like one of the most mechanically satisfying fights in the game, but also really thematically resonant. Uh, you know, you're, you're having a lot of story threads come together at one exact moment. Mm-hmm. And then following that up with some of the best world building you get so far with uh, learning about the raven, who is sort of the spirit of this university, and the owl, who is another spirit of the university. <laughs> it's great. You know, like, the second half of this game pulls no punches. It is so fast-paced and good, and that is why I finished it in two days compared with the three months it took me to finish the first <laughs> half. No joke. I see where that goes. And I think I heard you say that your last save point was right before that three-on-three duel. Is that right? Like That's correct. After the three months. I literally, I, I stopped at the nadir of the game. <laughs> and then I, I literally picked it back up at the crescendo and just rode that to the end. I got you. I got you. No, I, you know, I'm thinking back on my own experience playing this game. And I do think towards later on, I remember like uh, first playing the game, I'd be like, okay, I'm picking this up. I played it on the Switch. Switch is so good for indie games and just short short stretches of games. Um, But I picked it up and I'd be like, okay, I'm going to go through 30 minutes of this game. Um, And for the first, that first uh, part, about up to the Summerstone part, uh, it would be just doing 30 minutes, maybe an hour at a time. But after that, I'd be putting in multiple hours in a playthrough. So that lines up with my experience, too. Yeah, it, it's definitely a game that goes very hard at the end, and I'm glad it does. Like, the run-up to the, the climax of this game is, you know, transcendent. It's, it's fantastic. But they could use to tighten up that first half.
So you talked about the vocal track they had. Um, I think the music for this game is great. Um, I don't necessarily know if there's any tracks I would super, I, I'd like consider super banger tracks, but a lot of really great tracks um, without necessarily being ones you would remember five years from now. Like I listened to the soundtrack again today, a lot of great stuff. Yeah, so I think the Eichenfell soundtrack is really great, but it's so good that you don't even notice that it's there because it perfectly fits the scene. It's only later that you realize you've been humming the walking around the campus <laughs> theme to yourself for three days. And it, it's a soundtrack that's really good because it doesn't demand attention, right? It doesn't distract from what's on the screen. But when it does and when it wants to demand attention, it hits like a truck. Yeah, there. No, this game was the soundtrack was very well crafted, well put together. Um, I think Brian might have liked the soundtrack better than I did. I like the soundtrack for sure. Don't want to say otherwise, but um, there's nothing I remember humming so much. Some of the character themes were super good, though. Yeah, there's a few standouts, and character themes is one thing I want to bring up because this does have a thematic score, right? Each major character does have their own theme which mm-hmm. uh, comes up in exactly the right moment to make you like, oh, yeah, fuck yeah, it's Nell's time now. She's got that <laughs> violin going. Or, you know, <laughs> or it's Gilda's time because we got that show tune action going on now. Um, it's really good. You know, they, they also have, as you mentioned earlier, Josh, a fantastic combination of live instruments combined with chip tunes. Um, the violin is wow like out of this world um i know there's an artist here who i need to credit and i'll just try and insert that with a computerized voice or something (laughs) jeff ball but um the guitar also fantastic keys uh you know this is ivy and sarasu coming through with their steven universe magic and it is very good oh yeah piano tracks were amazing um and there was that uh i think it was a secret of the woods or secret of the forest track that Mm -hmm. had a theremin-like effect on, I think, a keyboard that worked really well. Kind of like a slide keyboard thing. Yeah, I know. There's one that sounds sort of like a western that's really good. (laughs) It's just so, like, it's so playful. That's what I'm thinking of, yeah. Yeah, and the, uh, this game also, as we've said, has utilized vocals, and I think it's to great effect. But it was a bit stretched uh, because they did it for battles, which, as we've mentioned, are long. And Hmm. you get repetition. You know, repetition does not make vocal songs better when they don't have like 17 verses to accommodate the time you need. And I think generally that's why video games avoid them. Like, think about the vocal songs and games you've really liked. I know one that you loved a lot was Hades playing In the Blood. Uh, That's Mm. playing over a cinematic cutscene rather than over a battle. Or Disco Elysium, as you're going up to the island, they have a vocal song, but it's still something you can sit back and appreciate as opposed to something you notice playing over and over again as a battle happens. This is different from other RPGs that have used vocal tracks for battle themes, though. For example, um, I have played I played Persona 5 Royal uh, back mm. in 
2020 spring. And I did not register this complaint when I played that game for a uh, hundred plus hours, which had a vocal track as one of its boss battles. Mm-hmm. So there is something going on here that like didn't work for this game in particular that did work in Persona 5. Uh, and, and hey, that's like a gigantic, like very high bar to hold a game to. Persona 5, one of the best soundtracks in video games. Hmm. But, you know, leave that where it is. And I, I just want to register the the fact that those two are different in some way that I can't quite quantify. I have not played Persona 5, but I have played Persona 3. Huge fan of that game and the soundtrack. Um, I can tell you if you take a listen to the uh, soundtrack for Persona 3 and some of these vocal hip-hop uh, rap songs they play, are the um, vocals are mixed down a lot. They're not so prominent as they are compared to some of the songs in Iconfell. That's a great point. They do mix down the vocals a lot in the Persona games uh, for battle th- for battle tracks, at least. And mm-hmm. that you're right. That does make a huge difference because it, it doesn't like come up front so much that you're repeating these things over and over again. Crossroads decisions, universe is splitting from the gravity of astrophysics. Books magically enhance my vision, reading happily despite our distance. There's something you've been missing. Gotta elevate the world for now, I think the vocal tracks, um, I went back and listened to the soundtrack again today, and with one exception, I thought the instrumental versions of characters' theme songs were better than the vocal versions. And the one exception was for Rook, whose vocal song never actually made it into the game itself. At least, not that I remember. Yeah, I, th- I think it... I, I don't know if it did or not either, but I remember listening to it on the sound or the Spotify playlist, and um, I'll be buying this soundtrack, by the way, for the purposes of editing this podcast. But um, yeah, this is a it, it's a great song, you know. It's uh, it's got a lot going on. It reminds me, honestly, of like a Lincoln Park song. Weirdly enough, it has a non-standard rhythm to it. Like it's not just a standard four-four. You got different rhythms playing off of each other. And even when the vocals come in, they're not going on the same rhythm as the instrumental melody line, which creates an interesting effect. You definitely don't hear a lot of rap that explores that area of rhythm. Well, at least you and I don't. <laughs> I'm sure it's out there. I'm sure there's hip hop heads out there that do, yeah. Well, um, send us your hip hop recommendations in the style <laughs> of Rook's, uh, Rook's theme song, please. And with that, let's try and summarize the magic of Eichenfell in a three-word review. All right, this game was a big thumbs up to me. I recommended it to Brian. I'd recommend it to anybody else as well. My three-word review is narrow and wide. Uh, This game had a lot of interesting things going, going on with it. One was the battle system, the narrowness of the grid, the 3x12, the lane-based combat that Brian was talking about, gave the combat a much different flavor than you would find in a typical grid-based RPG. 
Um, there was a lot more about the approach and the retreat, uh, about the teleporting, about the trap laying, than you would find in a typical tactical RPG. And this game was an interesting exploration of that as a mechanic, as a system. But the wideness of the game, the wideness comes from so many things. It comes from the uh, inclusivity, the representation that the game brings to the table. It comes from the wide world of magic that you're exploring, where you enter into a building and you don't know what's going to happen. Like, you might have a crazy alchemy lab going on. You might have pictures coming to life. You get to see some wondrous stuff going on and I'm always signing up for that Um, but more so than any of this it's the wideness the width of the human experience that this game brings to the table and that I can never recommend enough so for me this game was both narrow and wide I agree with all of that my three word review is accessible representation magic I get fell as a great RPG, but not for the reason I normally play RPGs. Customization and player expression are not really that present here aside from tactically. On the other hand, the ability to inhabit and roleplay a person outside of your perspective is represented in spades. On that note, representation and empathy for the characters in this story is what elevated the game from a run-of-the-mill tactical RPG to a tale that one, I don't see very often, and two, I'm really glad to have been a part of. In addition to that, its accessibility options ensure that everyone is able to enjoy the story to its fullest. I can fell as the type of game that I hope we see much more frequently in the future, as the gaming industry diversifies. And that, unequivocally, is a good thing. Because when you combine a hobby you love with the ability to share it with anyone, that's when the magic happens. And for me, that's accessible representation magic. So from us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to share it with folks you think might enjoy it as well. If you want to get in touch, drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at pixelplaypod. And for us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. Take care and keep on making magic. Sometimes I might see red, as red as pants of Santa's But when I'm feeling mad, I grab my paints and grab my canvas Use my brush to find some answers, always teaching on this campus Or telling tales like mangas that is beefing like I'm Angus I focus on my paintbrush, don't need hang-ups like a stalactite My multicolored paintings act like magic, that's a fact of life You have to understand this, cause I want us to start acting right As much as I love pandas, y'all, the world is more than black and white Let's paint the future, real bright with the faith of Martin Luther It feels right, let's paint the future, real bright with the faith of Martin Luther feels right. Let's paint the future real bright with the faith of Martin Luther. It feels right. Let's paint the future real bright with the faith of Martin Luther. It feels right. I think it's when I said, hey, let's just do a uh, podcast on this. You've played for 10 hours. That's good enough, even if you don't finish the game. But you were, you were just like, I got to finish this? <laughs> yeah, I I did play that first 10 hours, and, uh, and I had full intention of just podcasting with you on that 10 hours experience, but my Catholic guilt got the best of me. And I was like, <laughs> Mother, I'm going to finish this motherfucking game. <laughs> and it turned out to be the easiest thing I've ever done. Mm-hmm. Because immediately where I picked it up was like where the game decided it was going to be 
completely enthralling to me. I don't know if I was like not in the right headspace for the first half of it, or if the game legitimately got much more interesting during the back half, but that pacing issue just crushed me in the first half and then completely evaporated in the second half. You know what I remember from playing this game is that I always ended up playing for longer than I expected to, especially past the first bit. So, like, it would get more engrossing as time went on. Uh, it got to be more, got to be less of exploring the world, and it got to be more of seeing where the story and the characters end up as they do. I agree with that. And to me, this game, it ramped up in the second half. You know, I felt like I, I was being pulled forward. There are certain games and media properties that do that for me. And this game is a perfect example of it. Like, there are some games that when I start a chapter, I can't help but finish it. And chapter eight of Eichenfell was that. I finished it in one sitting. The same thing kind of happened with me. Uh, As I went along, um, I'd always play longer than I expected. And this really got me during the final, final boss fight. I was starting to play at 10 o'clock in the evening just kind of winding down I got to the sorcerer's tower I beat my last boss and then I found there was another boss after that who had four different forms and I was too proud to use the instant victory feature so like me yep (laughs) gamer pride it will be the death of us all Uh, But I don't think I finished up until about 2.30 in the morning. And at that point, I was about done. I I think the final, final boss fight had some interesting things, but it did last for too long. Like, I felt like I needed to reach a lull in the action before I stopped. Like, um, the run-up to the tower was where I finished my uh, penultimate play session, and then my last session, like I went all the way through the Sorcerer's Tower and the final boss. But unlike you, I did not have the luxury of staying up till 2.30 a.m. because <laughs> I would have literally died trying to resuscitate my daughter in the morning for her <laughs> morning bottle. Um, so I used the, you know, the uh, auto victory and I saw the end of this game, which to me was a great experience as a uh, a new father who has limited periods of time to do these types of things, I'm very grateful for that. And, you know, I, the, the video game difficulty discourse is toxic as shit, so I don't even want to wade into that cesspool, but I'm glad that what exists in this game exists here. For sure, for sure. It lets you get past things. I mean, I feel if you're holding difficulty against yourself in terms of what you do and what you don't, what options you might use, then that's one thing. But when you start holding other people to your own standard, when you don't know what the hell is going on with their life, like, you know, waking up to feed babies or what have (laughs) you, um, like, why? I don't get it. There's a lot of toxicity in gamer culture. I We can both agree on that pretty easily. And that just seems like unnecessary. Both the general toxicity and this aspect of it in particular. 